Pace Line is produced by the Cycling Independent with the support of subscribers like you and additional underwriting from Shimano North America. We are community-focused, community-supported, and dedicated to the whole of cycling. Always remember, at the Cycling Independent, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my host, uh, John Lewis. Uh, and I'm not at my best, uh, at least not this week. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. Um, so it's my turn. Um, I, I, You know, that's what we said, like, on swing sets and and, and slides and stuff and merry go It's my turn. <coughs> You're not really supposed to say that with the COVID. No, no. But just like, um, you know, the the uh, rides at the fair where it becomes your turn, sometimes uh, you get off feeling sick. Yeah. Uh, I, I, another little metaphor. I'm thinking of the deli line where you get the number. Mm. My number is up. Your number is up. Yes. Um, That's right. And uh after three vaccinations, if this is how I feel, you'll take it. I'm going to get a fourth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I may not need it right away after this experience, but uh, yeah. I'll take all the vaccinations. Well, you know what I like to say? Uh, that which doesn't kill you uh, probably weakens you enough. So the next thing that comes along will. <laughs> uh, fair point. Fair point. <laughs> Fair, fair, fair point. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was not somebody who ever struggled with vaccinations. Uh, mm. Growing up in Memphis in seventh grade, my uh, reading and, you know, overall English teacher, she was the last person to contract polio in Memphis. Oh, yeah. Um, and she was a child. She was like seven uh, so she had stories of life in the polio ward while she recovered. Um, it destroyed one muscle in her uh, right or left foot so that that, you know, when you when you're standing on the ground and you lift your toes, but keep your heel on the ground, the muscles that do that gone, gone. She couldn't do that in one foot. My grandfather had polio. Uh, he lived with us uh, and it wrecked his legs. Mm-hmm. He He walked. He could walk with a cane. It didn't look good. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 they don't, I don't think they make vaccines for stuff that's, that you'll enjoy. So if they want to <laughs> give me one, I'm pretty down. I, yeah. Well, the stuff, the stuff that, you know, the stuff that's meant to vaccinate you about things you enjoy, they call that advertising. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, let's move on to things that are more cycling related. Oh, let's do it. Sure. Um, I have been watching a little bit of pro road racing lately. Um, Mm. Mostly the short highlights you can get on YouTube. Okay. Uh, Global Cycling Network does a good job with those. Uh uh, Doing compact, easy to understand 
um, digests of, you know, four and five hour races. Mm. Um, for the spring classics, I actually watched the 10 minute version of every race for both the men and the women. Um, and it's funny when you watch them side by side, how indistinguishable they are. <laughs> it's all, they just look like people on bikes doing all the little bits of race strategy that, you know, come down to the final kilometer and then someone wins. They look just the same. So I, I guess on the women's side, more of the riders have ponytails. But other than that, <laughs> it looks the same to me. Sim- yeah, because yeah. the the guys are so skinny that, yeah, the 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 uh, frame of the person on the bike is not especially significant. It's a bunch of Lycra billboards uh, flying <laughs> around um, up and down roads and then someone wins. Um, because I haven't been paying much attention to the Euro pros, I'm, I'm sort of out of touch also with the sponsorship changes that have come around, um, the different kits that trickle out of that change, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, who's racing for whom now. And so there's this, there's this process of, uh, bringing this big chaotic picture into focus, (coughs) understanding who the real contenders are again mm-hmm. you know like the people who i used to i used to think were the contenders they're not the contenders anymore they're the old heads uh and they're probably not going to win stuff so i'm beginning to know the characters a little bit and that brings me back to two issues i have with sports generally and with cycling specifically and that's what i want to talk about today okay The first thing has to do, and I hinted at this, with the way we approach men's sports and women's sports. Mm -hmm. You and I have talked about this on the podcast before, but we pretend mostly that sports are gendered, that it it makes a difference to the viewing experience, who is participating. Yeah, that's what humanity has kind of defaulted to. My my view is that all sports, not just cycling, but all of them are basically just character driven narratives. Yeah. I mean, ideally. Yeah. Yeah. Once you once you know who the characters in the story are, the story gets real interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't matter what gender they are, how fast they're going, etc. You know, like as an example, I, I don't know how many times I sat next to t-ball fields or baseball fields watching my kids play and as you go along you learn who the other kids on the team are and like a little story emerges about the team Mm -hmm. and it becomes more interesting than just sitting around watching kids play t-ball yes i would never just sit around and watch kids play t-ball but anyway um so sports which which do take place in real life aren't really different than a movie that is staged with actors, right? Mm. Since we don't know the athletes, they might as well be actors. Some of them seem a lot like actors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. They're sort of, they are fictional vis-a-vis our own lives, right? Like, I don't encounter uh, 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 Matthew Matthew Vanderpool or Mariana... uh, uh, Voss, I don't they don't I don't come across them in my real life. They're just people on a screen for me. Yep. Um, The difference, I guess, is just that in sports, the story is improvised. 
and that can make it exciting. Yeah. But what but what underpins that is these narrative tensions that develop between the characters. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Tour de France is Star Wars and vice versa. Yeah. Um, so I find I can enjoy kind of any sport with any participants if I know who the characters are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one piece of it. The second idea relates more specifically to pro cycling, and it shares some aspects of that character driven narrative thing I just brought up. Uh-huh. And it's the, and it's this. The pro cycling teams aren't stable entities. <laughs> no, no, they are not. They're like because, houses falling down. Right. They take the names of their sponsors instead of a franchise name, like the Dallas Cowboys or Real Madrid. Uh, And it becomes very difficult to forge and maintain the character of that team over time, the cycling team. Mm -hmm. And this makes it a lot more difficult for casual fans to interact with the sport meaningfully and make emotional connections based on shared values or geography or love of particular characters that adhere to that team. Mm -hmm. And that just feels like a massive miss to me. Like in my mind, a team should have a set name and colors. Yep. And a rotating cast of sponsors. Uh, And that would help people watching the story to understand who is uh, who's who and what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like the parent companies that American teams were trying to get their organizations known by Tailwind Sports, that sort of thing. Right. It was becoming kind of a a meta brand. Right. Um, And I mean, yeah, I wrote about that, you know, more than 10 years ago. It's like two sponsor name changes and nobody has any idea. Um, Right. so I've got COVID and I'm watching TV some here and there, you know, as I like fall asleep and wake up again and fall asleep. And so when I put on a movie uh, and I don't actually watch TV, I'll put a movie on Netflix or something. Very often I'm selecting stuff that I have seen before um, where I have a basic recollection of the plot line so that if I pass out and come back in 40 minutes later, it's like, oh yeah, James Bond isn't dead yet. Um, <laughs> And so I was watching uh, uh, GoldenEye from the 1990s again. And at one point there's a chase scene and there's a bunch of cyclists on the road and they go tearing by and all the cyclists fall over. I had noticed this way back when most of those guys in that shot were from the amateur club that was the fan club for the Italian or yeah, I think it was Italian team Jolly 88. Now, there's some aspect of the Jolly 88 formation and organization, team directors and mechanics. And what, some aspect of those folks is still in circulation in cycling. I have no idea where. Right. That's, that's the right. fail you're talking about. Yeah, it's incoherent year mm-hmm. to year, or it's marginally coherent year to year. But if I, if I drop the thread of paying attention to it, as I have, and then I come back, well, Mark Cavendish rides for who? And Ineos Grenadiers is who? And yeah. education first, and like, I don't, you know, there's like a few threads like, oh, the quick step. Belgian, yeah, okay. I mean, at least like, Prince had it right. The artist formerly known, you know, I need the team formerly known as Sky. Right. 
Right, and I just think like it's the tail when the sponsor is the t- is the name of the team. It's the tail wagging the dog. You know, the team has to have inherent value mm-hmm. uh, in order for its value to increase mm-hmm. and be maintained yeah. uh, by anything other than you know its current contracted riders. So it just feels like the owners of these teams uh, or the entire organization is missed out really on a way to build brand equity within its teams and within its tour in a meaningful way. Yep. Um, it doesn't matter. People are still, you know, putting their, their brightly colored Lycra on and racing around up and down streets. It's cool. But uh, I just think, um, a, a sport that's been so riven by, um, you know, d- drug controversies that people like me who love it very dearly pretty much gave up on it. Mm. It, it. It needs to it needs to get a clue about how it presents itself. Well, I mean, that's why I tuned out of pro cycling was that everything that they could do to help themselves was not the thing they were doing. Right. <laughs> and obviously couldn't like, be done. Uh, I mean, it's a sport that has a problem for every solution, right? which is not unlike everything the uci does but anyway i'm probably not going to go back to watching all the races all the time at least not now i enjoy the highlights it was nice to re-engage with the story a little bit i'm glad to hear that you're kind of on the same page with me because sometimes i'm just curmudgeonly (laughs) um no it's it's sad it really is because you know, bike racing is a beautiful sport. Um, I mean, most of the time it's like watching paint dry. Um, yeah. And I have, I you know, honestly, I have tired of that part of bike racing. That's yet another reason I don't watch anymore is that I'm no longer uh, captivated by the drama of what might soon happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, two hours so, from the finish line. What 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 could maybe be happening here? Well, I mean, there's a certain I love absurdity. OK, mm. I mean, how often do I mention Franz Kafka here, mm-hmm. uh, which is probably something you shouldn't be doing. A podcast about cycling shouldn't be referencing uh, absurdist European authors. Mm. But I do love absurdity. Mm. And I. I'm going to have to go buy YouTube is what I'm going to have to do because I like the absurdity of being able to condense five hours of human drama into 10 minutes of video. Yeah. And it, I I'm taking it that it doesn't look like, remember the, the sitcoms when we were kids, how they'd have every now and that little sequence where they'd follow somebody, you know, and shoot it in slow-mo and then they'd play it back, you know, at normal speed. And so they'd be really quickly and it would condense yeah. like two hours of activity into like one, one minute. Yeah. Does it look like that? <laughs> um, no, it looks like, um, princess Leia gets taken hostage and then, uh, Luke Skywalker blows up the death star. That's what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> which you know darth vader cool. walks through one frame and swings his lightsaber yeah yeah we didn't get the we you know it cuts out the trash compactor and all the other nonsense it's great um i should i it's worth mentioning right now that yesterday binyam gourmet became the first black african to win uh, a giro stage 
Um, and he uh, won the Gent-Wevelgum race uh, mm-hmm. this year as well. He is mm-hmm. a real star happening. And uh, while I very much look forward to the day when uh, someone who looks like Biniam, um winning a race is no big deal. We're not at that day yet. It's just yet, another so, thing. Yeah. 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 It's, it'll be great when it's just another thing, but it, we're not there yet. And so... I mean, this guy is exciting. You know, he beat uh, Vanderpool to the line yesterday, which is a big deal because Vanderpool is a big deal. And Vanderpool, very classy, gave him the thumbs up coming through second. Like, you know, it was a dead race and and Germain just took it. And so that's exciting and worth mentioning. And and it's a shame that uh, cycling is so terribly whitewashed that uh we mentioned the race of uh the winner because it's never happened before right uh i mean poor guy of all the things that he wants people talking about you know i i can imagine that all he wants people to talk about is the fact that he's a badass right um which you know. he most definitely is yeah <laughs> but they're, very they're like, definitely there's this is. total oh oh and also yeah um, yeah yeah That's how I like to look at it, that this guy is amazing. As far as like interesting characters Mm -hmm. and people that you want to root for go, there's there's one. So maybe that's a toehold back in pro racing. I do think there are some interesting characters there. You know, I don't I certainly don't want to focus on his race, but the fact of his race, there's a human story there that certainly needs to come out in some greater way. Yeah, because uh, obviously he's had to work through uh, a number of who knows what uh, to get to where he is today. That's a human story. Yeah. Um, and he deserves to be celebrated for whatever that path is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, it's a good day for cycling when 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 these things happen. Anyway, let's take a break. We'll, uh, I'll let you take a nap, and uh, we'll come back in just a minute. This podcast is brought to you by Shimano. Uh, I want to say that as our first sponsor for the Cycling Independent, uh, we tried to be pretty choosy about how, who we decided to work with. The, the thing that was particularly compelling uh, in talking to Shimano was that they didn't have any they, – they were on board with our independence. And they, the last thing that they wanted was to feel like uh, readers and listeners would interpret their sponsorship as some control. Uh, in fact, they were saying that, um, you know, in, in, in this day, they don't really need to sell products. They're not – sponsoring us to try to sell more product. They're sponsoring us to try to support independent media. Uh, and those are easy words to say, but then in, in creating the sort of um, footprint that they would have with us, they offered no suggestions. They just said, we, we trust you guys to represent us sincerely and how, you, how it's going to work best for you. So let's just go with that. So I have to say huge respect for them and huge appreciation for making the podcast possible. Okay, we're back with the pace line, the podcast on two wheels. Patrick is rested up. <laughs> let's let's get As to if. his pull. What do you got? Let's talk e-bikes. Oh, uh, because I'm homesick with COVID. Uh, I've been saved from having to drive anywhere at all in my car, which is actually kind of 
a thing of beauty, considering that the cost of gas here in Northern California has now eclipsed the $6 a gallon mark. It's crazy. Uh, I mean, hey, you know, if this is the result of uh, Ukraine standing up for itself, uh, I'll pay seven. Sure. Uh, You know, cheers to them. Uh, But I'm genuinely glad I don't have to go anywhere. Uh, (laughs) That said, were I headed out and about currently, uh, I wouldn't need to use my car. Here in Santa Rosa, we've had blue skies and daily highs in the 70s. Uh, I walked out on my balcony to uh, grab the laundry and I found that out. Otherwise, I wouldn't know. Mm -hmm. Um, I do see the blue skies. Um, You know, and I don't need weather this good to ride my e-bike to get around town, but it's a handy thing. Yeah. I've shared here previously that I own a Yuba spicy curry. Um, I had the opportunity to review one back in the spring of 2016. And while I loved the thing, my boys loved the thing and were not just dejected, but downright sad when I had to return the bike. I thought my youngest was going to cry. Uh, so I ended up selling my townie and a few other items, uh, a couple of wheel sets, uh, most anything that wasn't nailed down in order to buy a spicy curry a couple months later. At the time, given how much I was driving and the go- cost of gas, again, at the time, uh, which was roughly $4 a gallon, uh, I calculated that it was going to take about two years of near daily riding for the thing to pay for itself in gas savings. Uh, it ended up taking closer to three years before I'd ridden enough miles for the thing to pay for itself. I hadn't really calculated how much I wasn't going to ride in the winter when it was, mm-hmm. you know, 39 and raining. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Um, but with gas at $6 a gallon, the math is noticeably different. When I bought my e-bike, it was also noticeably less expensive. Uh, the spicy curry is a cargo bike. It's got a big basket on the front, 26-inch wheel in front, 20-inch wheel in rear, and it's got this low deck and a long tail so that the boys can sit on the back. Um, the current uh, spicy curry goes for fifty nine eighty five, set up with all the same accessories that I have. Relative to my car, which has a 16-gallon tank, the price works out to roughly 66 tanks of gas at current California prices. Um, for anyone driving a bigger truck or SUV, it's more like 40 tanks. Mm-hmm. There's another dimension of e-bike purchasing that has changed. Uh, in 2016, it was all but impossible to find a quality e-bike that went for less than about $3,3500, somewhere in there. Today, there are a number of reasonably good e-bikes out there in the $1,500 to $2,000 price range. You can find $1,000 e-bikes and you can find e-bikes that cost even less than $1,000. Anything below about $1,000, I wouldn't trust uh, my childhood enemy on. Uh, uh, there's, there's definitely some questionable stuff out there. At $1,000, they are a little shaky. You start getting close to $2,000. They're not bad. Uh, you can find uh, an e-bike, you know, with a decent motor and uh, hydraulic 
uh, disc brakes, sometimes even front suspension, decent tires, uh, a seven or maybe even eight speed drivetrain for, you know, $1,700, $1,800. It's not bad. Now, for someone driving a Ford F-150 with the smallest tank available in that truck, which is 23 gallons, a $1,750 e-bike will pay for itself in only 12 trips to the pump. (laughs) That is, once the F-150 owner has ridden enough to save themselves 12 trips to the pump, they'll be in the black with that bike. Yeah. Now, I get that Teslas are sexy, Sexy enough that I've even looked at, like, leasing one. Uh, And they garner headlines and that, you know, hybrids are all the rage for those of us looking for something a bit more economical. But analysis after analysis has shown that the number one thing people can do to reduce their carbon footprint is to ride a bike. And while I'm thinking that we all ought to be trying to do more to save the planet right now, um... Self-interest being what it is <laughs> and bank accounts being what they are. Um, nothing really makes the case better for an e-bike than, you know, good old fashioned savings of money. Self-interest. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, I think this ought to be the summer of the e-bike. I mean, my bike shop friends are selling them. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they're they're moving. Um, I think there's a, a bunch of confusion in the market about because the e-bikes that make the most sense for people for daily riding mm-hmm. you know the sort of errand errand townie bike yeah uh, the big uh, traditional bike companies haven't put out options that are home runs Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I know we're getting into territory that is um, uh, fertile for you, so I don't want to say too much, but I would say, you know, in that $2,500 range, for example, uh, the big guys aren't making bikes that are the obvious choice. So then consumers are assimilating new brands. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, You have your pedagogues and and your... Yeah, I zip. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yeah. Um, so and that leads to like uh, uncertainty. You know, if someone was going to buy one of the big four brands, say a giant, mm-hmm. uh, they would think, oh, well, I know what giants are oh, or I trust the giant is a company that makes good things because they have a history in the marketplace. Um. But if they're not making that go-to e-bike and they have to assimilate a new brand and try to understand whether that brand is a worthwhile investment, uh, I think it's somewhat difficult. But having said that, there are a lot of e-bikes moving out through the (laughs) moving out the doors of uh, local bike shops everywhere right now. Yeah. Well, so Specialized, uh, they one of their bikes is the Turbo Como Mm -hmm. city bike. And I believe they start at thirty two fifty. I'd say five thousand in that line is about the sweet spot. Mm, that might actually be the upper end. Uh, <laughs> I've got a good memory, not eidetic. Um, what specialized is doing in e-bikes? Holy cow! I mean, like they've got an app-based security system with a GPS tracker. 
If somebody steals your bike, you can disable it so they can't even pedal it because it's a mid-drive motor. The crank will just spin. They can't do anything with the bike if they steal it. Plus, you can then, you know, with the GPS tracker, go yeah. knock on the door and say, you know, hey. Um, not that I think it'll go down like that. Uh, what well, with having had some bikes stolen. Moving right along. Uh, I, you know, to be fair, you know, there are... Like I said, there are really nice options in that fifteen hundred to two thousand dollar range, uh, but what you get if you drop the money for a specialized, I don't actually think Trek is doing as nice a job at the same price point as Specialized is, um, which does suggest there's like room for some evolution there. Yeah, I see. I see all that, but I think the person who buys a thirty two hundred dollar e bike is already a cyclist. Um, You're probably right about that. And I think the people that we need to buy e-bikes are not cyclists. And so Mm -hmm. that $1,500 to $2,000 price point becomes super important. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I'm hoping that that's just the gateway drug. Oh, I'm with you. I'm rooting for it. I believe in it. But I think it is, I would say it's an unsettled market right now. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think that probably um, heightens the sense of competition among the people trying to access the market and probably will get us better products than if the market was dominated by three or four brands like it is on the bike, you know, the traditional bike side. So, yeah, um, yeah, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's a very interesting thing. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um the the place where we've got room for a lot of market maturation is the whole cargo bike uh segment mm. um you know i still look at you know well like the the specialized turbo como <laughs> that is an unbelievably cool bike but when i think about well would i rather once the boys i philip my 12 year old is at a point where he really kind of doesn't want to be seen on the back of the bike anymore Mm. um i was like oh we're reaching that point (laughs) too cool for dad right uh you know and i do suppose too too cool for riding the back of the cargo bike with dad comes before just too cool for dad yes uh so we're getting there but you know there's going to come a point where i can't get the boys on the back of the bike at all And so the question becomes, would I still want to have a cargo bike or would I rather have something like the Turbo Como? Um, And I still like the idea uh, of my cargo bike. I will get a big basket for the back and I will go do all of the grocery shopping, not three bags worth. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think I I think that is an excellent application uh, that's most of our trips, right? Out to the stores. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and if we can replace those, but it, that's that change is technological in the sense of having a capable bike. And it's also cultural. Um, yeah. I live in a pretty progressive spot and there are definitely people showing up on big cargo bikes at the grocery store and taking away their groceries that way. But it's 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 not the norm at all. Yeah. Yeah. There is one uh, errand that I've realized I can't really run with an e-bike, despite the complete lack of weight of this particular purchase. Go ahead. The dry cleaner. (laughs) You go to a dry cleaner? (laughs) Well, you know, my nicer shirts, I get, you know, laundered. You have nicer shirts? Who are you? What kind of fancy Dan are you? 
Well, I, I am aware that the entirety of your wardrobe is comprised of black T-shirts. <laughs> it's in a podcast. It is. It's true. Yes. <laughs> it's not, uh, it's not yeah. entirely inaccurate. Some of my shirts have buttons, and those shirts oh, get ironed. Buttons? And I refuse to iron them myself anymore. Excuse me. <laughs> buttons. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, the other thing is, like, I like the extra stability that comes with the longer wheelbase of a cargo e-bike. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, 28 miles an hour is eight miles an hour faster than I'm going. Um, and that's cool and all, but you know, having, I've always maintained, I've always maintained that you will go fastest on the bike that doesn't make you feel like you're going fast. And so when I'm going 20 miles an hour, if it feels like I'm only going 10, I like that. I like the calm of that and uh, a little more powerful motor on my bike would not be a bad thing. I don't need the extra speed, but I'm not sure, you know, zipping around at 20, 28 miles an hour on a one meter wheelbase bike is necessarily how I want to feel about running around town. No, one of the things I enjoy about e-bikes, I mean, I've tried to ride fast on bikes for a long time. <laughs> Almost all of my bikes I get, you know, and even if I get, I mean, most of the bikes I get on, I'm like, oh, what'll this thing do? But when I get on an e-bike, okay, it's, it, once you get over the idea of like, this is not a moped, this is not a zip around, like push a button, zip around town thing. Um, I like the cruiser vibe of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, so I'm not, I don't need to go, I don't need to break 20 miles an hour. And I'd argue, I'd actually argue that no one does. <laughs> I, I will say that given some of the suburbs that I have, uh, spent time in, if not actually lived in the distances between the lights on city blocks mm. can be such that I I can see why somebody would go, no, I, I want the 28. <laughs> I, oh, I know they want it. I just, you know, how many people do we want rolling around with a full week's worth of groceries at, at, thir at nearly 30 miles per hour? <laughs> right, I mean, right. the hilarity of the crashes, uh, um, uh, the idea amuses me. But that's in reality, that's no, no good. Yeah, that's a real just waiting to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All righty. Well, let's let's do some paceline picks. OK, so this week for me, it's the POC Savant mountain bike glove. Uh, most of my friends call this brand POC, mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's actually POC, uh, which stands for piece of cake. It's a it's a Swedish brand. I, I, I don't know why they call their brand piece of cake. Uh, when I look at their stuff, it has a real nice design aspect to it. It doesn't doesn't have cakey vibes to me, but I'll leave it there. Um, <laughs> anyway, a few episodes back, I picked the Giro Trickster glove, which is mm -hmm. a, a minimalist, warm weather, full fingered glove. The POC Savant is the slightly more robust version of a mountain biking glove. Uh -huh. that, that I also really love. The Savant has a thicker, sturdier palm. It has great grip. Uh, the elasticated wrist is more substantial. Elasticated? Um, Not yeah. elasticized? Okay, elasticized. All right. Uh, Masticated? 
<laughs> you Jazzer- chew on your gloves? The jazzer-sized wrist is more substantial. <laughs> um, <laughs> it has a breathable mesh back like you would want it to. Um, like the Trickster, I'd say there's not too much glove there. Um, mm. At 40 bucks, it's twice the price of the Trickster. So you could reasonably ask, would I be better off with two pairs of the Trickster or one pair of the Savants? And I would say that that's, that's the right ratio um i get more wears out of the savant before i wash it probably twice as many um the other thing i'd say about it is the savant is is it's enough glove that i can squeeze a thin liner under it and wear it in the shoulder seasons and Mm. i really like that because it's a very um it gives me a lot of dexterity Mm -hmm. um so it, it has sort of more versatility than the trickster and i think it's probably worth the price i i need that kind of versatility for my stuff so Mm -hmm. um this is not a bad glove for me to have in the lineup it comes in four different colors three of which i find acceptable and that's pretty remarkable Um, yeah that's a that's a high success rate yeah uh so that's my pick for the week the poc savant Hmm. well to make the yuba spicy curry my pick this week would be just facile too easy Mm. An abuse of power. <laughs> Not everyone needs a cargo bike. And if every Paceline listener tried to order one, there would be a number of unhappy Paceline listeners because they just don't make enough of them. Supply chain issues aside. Sure. Instead, I'm recommending the motor in the spicy curry, which is made by Bosch. Uh, e-bike motors come in two basic flavors, hub motors and mid-drive motors. Bosch makes mid-drive motors, and I'm betting by now most of our listeners have seen a bike with a Bosch motor. Uh, The thing about Bosch motors, and all mid-drives for that matter, um, is that they use, actually technically known, that's not true, but the vast majority of all mid-drives, they use a torque sensor to judge how to when and how to dial in power, uh, making them pretty instantaneously responsive as well as more efficient in their use of power, uh, meaning a 350-watt Bosch motor can provide as much effective power and torque as an e-bike with a 750-watt hub motor. There are some hub motors out there that have torque sensors in them, but most of them use cadence sensors, which means you do nearly one complete pedal stroke before uh, the power starts kicking in, which... Not the most fun experience ever once you've been on something with a torque sensor. Hmm. Uh, I, because of writing this up, I thought, you know, I should go by the Bosch website and look at how many different motors they make. For a long time, I thought they made a motor. And early on, they did. They make 12 different motors now. Wow. They're organized in five different lines. Uh, The funny thing is, you know, they all have uh, the same genealogy. Uh, They're all an outgrowth of a motor that was originally designed for power steering systems. Hmm. That's how they got into this. Hmm. One of the executives go, hey, this power steering motor, let's use it in bikes. Interesting. And, you know, created a little team of engineers and whatnot and sent people away. And uh, it's easy to make the argument they're making the best motors in e-bikes these days. Right. There are a lot of good ones, but... Man, they're doing a great job of it. And you can find their motors and, you know, bikes from a whole variety of brands, not specialized. They, they're using motors made by Broza. Um, 
But, I, you know, for me, it's one of those kind of classic marks of quality. You see an e-bike with a Bosch motor and it's like, okay, they probably did most everything right on that bike. <laughs> it's, a, it's a way to, it's a way to really trust uh, the design of a bike. Uh, yeah. But I just, I love how they work. Uh, I don't mind having a class one bike. I don't need a throttle. And as we discussed earlier, 28 miles an hour, not really necessary in my life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they do a dynamite job with these. And so if I'm going to steer people toward contemplating an e-bike purchase, uh, a little shorthand there is just look for something with a Bosch motor. Yeah. Good. Yeah. All righty. Well, that's wrap on another episode of the pace line. Uh, I'm not going to be outside this weekend because my little test card has a dark black line on the T line. Are you going outside and do anything fun? Oh yes. Oh yes. Um, well it's actually supposed to be middle nineties and humid here this weekend. Uh, so I'm, I'm hope I'm going to get out very early, uh, to ride my new mountain bike, which you and I both we both have new mountain bikes and we're going to be talking about them in an upcoming episode. Once we can both had a chance to ride them. some. (laughs) yeah, yeah, I, I'm pretty close to being able to talk about this bike, uh, but another week will do me good. And I'm going to try to do some research this weekend. Yeah. Well, the moment I'm healthy enough to be riding, I'll be back on mine. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I have no idea what date that will be. I'm hoping it's May. Right. <laughs> right. You got 12 days to save this month. Yeah. Uh, mm, mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty. Well, uh, before we go, I'd like to put in a plug for TCI's other podcasts, Revolting, which is a cycling pad, mm, toy boat, cycling podcast that isn't really about cycling with John and Stevel Knievel of All Hail the Black Market, as well as Enter the Deuce, which is even less about cycling and is more about the miracle that is modern medicine. We hope you like them. And if you do, please re- Please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and if we aren't listed where you're listening, let us know. Send us some questions. If you've got an idea, please drop by the Cycling Independent and put a suggestion in the comments. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with John Lewis. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line.